Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers to worry about. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This month, in fact, I headed to Munich for vacation and caught Dr. Elisi, which I'll be talking about in this podcast. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater with you and hopefully inspire you to see a play, a musical, or a theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits that I attended for the month of May in 2019. There's a bunch of revivals I'm going to talk about, including Sean O'Casey's The Shadow of a Gunman at Irish Rep, the Red Bull Theater's production of Macbeth, a Broadway revival of All My Sons with Annette Bening, at the Encores in New York City Center, a revival of High Button Shoes. Then we're going to go to Broadway and cover two new musicals that opened this spring, Tootsie and Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. I have a bunch of off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway offerings, including Tony winner Alice Ripley in The Pink Unicorn. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. I'd like to start this month's podcast downtown in a small basement theater in the East Village at the Theater for the New City. The play is called Bound. Marigold Page is a Tohono Odom woman. She is also an activist working with her tribe to resist a wall being built across their nation. She meets John Morales Rio, a native man who is a land surveyor working in the southern U.S. and Mexico. He is smitten and charms her into a spontaneous picnic. Why this particular career? His family has a history of protecting their lands and ensuring that the most sacred sites are protected for generations to come. John tells Marigold, I feel bound to it. Director and writer Tara Moses is a citizen of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. American Indian Artists, Inc., Amarinda, well, they work to foster intercultural understanding of Native culture. Located in New York, this multi-arts organization is the only one of its kind in the United States. Amidst our current political circus regarding our border with Mexico, Bound makes us contemplate boundaries in a refreshingly interesting way. The Gadsden Purchase of 1853 was signed by Mexican President Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana and James Gadsden, the U.S. ambassador to that country. The westward railroads were being built, and the land was coveted for such development. No one seemed to care that the new border would split this particular tribe across two different countries. John has been hired to assist an oil company now looking to develop a pipeline through their long-bequeathed lands. His intentions are well-meaning. By participating in the process, 
perhaps the most sacred sites can be spared. Both John and Marigold, though, are finding it harder to get to work these days. The additional border security adds significant delays traversing through the boundaries of their nation. This play fluidly alternates between the current-day struggles of John and Marigold back to the conflicts experienced by White River and Tall Woman in 1853. Both generations are played by Dylan Carusona and Elizabeth Ralston. The characters are not deeply written, but both actors manage to imbue them with charm and a sense of purpose. While a good portion of Bound focuses on the Native American experience, Miss Moses intersperses her story with historical reenactments. Scenes with key historical figures such as President Franklin Pierce and his Secretary of War Jefferson Davis give historical perspective. The economic hunger of America as a young, aggressive nation hell-bent on colonization is dramatized. The oil industry's encroachment is represented as the same story all over again. Other scenes from today's headlines are equally highlighted. Snippets from television reporting are recreated, such as the coverage of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's pipeline protests. The Border Patrol repeats what we've all heard before. Quote, many of them are drug cartels, murderers, and rapists, unquote. As the white chorus man, Nicholas Stauffer was especially effective in successfully inhabiting these different characterizations. No one is illegal on stolen land, maybe the belief or the dream, but reality seems to suggest otherwise. Centuries of warring native tribes had to come together when a new, better armed and financed tribe came to conquer. Capitalism is represented as an evolutionary step after tribalism. Countries became greater than tribes. Are we now in a period where corporations and money are becoming greater than countries? Bound, the play, is full of ideas. The material itself contains fairly average dialogue, but it did inspire some thoughtful contemplation. Is the history of white European colonists in North America any different than those who drew imaginary lines and split tribes haphazardly in the Middle East? For a very small-scale play presented in an East Village basement on a shoestring budget, I felt engaged. That is commendable. When a cultural institution is engaged in making the world see their truth through a different lens, that is meaningful theater. Bound could certainly be a better play than it is today. As a white European second-generation descendant from immigrants, I have to agree, though, that America could certainly be more compassionate than it is today. Now let's talk about a new play off-Broadway. It's topical. It's called The Bigot. There are two apartments across the hall from each other in The Bigot. In the messy one on the right, Bill O'Reilly's book Killing Reagan is perched on the couch. Bottles of pills are sitting on a tray. On the left of the stage is a much neater, more modern home. Two young lesbians have just moved in after a brief courtship. They are celebrating their anniversary of two months, two days, six hours, and 23 minutes. Stephen Payne plays Jim. He's a cantankerous old grump who's the character of the title. Dana Watkins is his son, Seth. When he comes by to check in on Dad, 
The Fox channel is blaring. Jim is currently going through dialysis and having a rough time of it. No kidney matches have yet been identified. In the first scene, we learn that his son has not been tested for a match yet. Why not? How is Jim a bigot? Oh, in the usual ways. Quote, it's not a conspiracy theory if it's true, unquote. In a debate about slavery, Jim offers that it was necessity of the time to advance commerce. Later, he will touch on the Muslims and the Jews. Most of this character development is fairly generic stuff that we've seen now and heard many, many times before, whether on stage or off. The couple across the hall are healthcare workers having met in an emergency room. Jamie Page is Paula. She's the romanticist, effusively optimistic and relentlessly kind. Aisha is played by Faven Fenshazion. Sorry for the pronunciation. Aisha is the practical, opinionated, organized half of this couple. Throughout the play, they consult their watches and continue to count the minutes since they first met. When Seth converses with Dad's friendly neighbors, he asks if they might not mind looking in on him once in a while. With the unrestrained glee of a woman striving for sainthood, Paula throws herself headfirst into the task. The bigot Jim has no time for lesbians and tells Seth, Those two carpet munchers get me so worked up. The bigotry is neither funny enough to be comedy, nor seriously disturbing enough to be dramatically repulsive. Most of the jokes just land with a thud. From this setup, the plot careens from contrivance to contrivance. Can our lesbians crack the hardened shell of this bigot? Will father and son continue to bark at each other rather than heal their openly visible relationship wounds? Will a kidney transplant become available or will dad die? Each person in this cast works hard to create believable people with more than one or two dimensions. All of these actors are successful in that regard. The play's time period spans one month. The story arc and the characters' progressions are forced and unbelievable. Gabby and Eva Moore have written this play from their personal experiences. They encounter discrimination. Like the character of Paula, who's referred to as the gay Mary Poppins, they remain hopeful for a better future. Intolerance is perhaps the defining descriptor of the decade in which we live. The bigot wants to shed a light on how we might be able to crack the code towards better communication and understanding. The plot twists here, however, are too numerous and far-fetched. As a result, the play just muddles through as a mashup of Archie Bunker and an underwritten Lifetime movie. Next, let's go to The Tank, another off-off-Broadway house. This uh, piece of work was titled Miseducated, An Oral History of Sexual Miseducation. Flesh Mob is a performance collective which created this interdisciplinary dance theater work about sexual education. From their website, quote, Sex is funny, stupid, gross, elevated, and base, and will never stop being titillated or uncomfortable about it. Unquote. Miseducated, an oral history of sexual miseducation, is based on interviews they conducted. The performance is a combination of documentary theater, movement, humor, nudity, and live music. The show started awkwardly, which, given the subject matter, is likely intentional. Co-creator Ben Gorodetsky banters with the audience about youthful experiences learning about sex 
or misconceptions at the time. With his Russian background, he debunks his own notion that sex isn't drinking pee out of a condom in a Soviet way. That particular story is very, very funny. He opens up the floor and asks for audience participation. Eventually, the lights dim and a staged work begins. In multiple scenes, movement akin to modern dance is utilized both to celebrate sexuality and also consider its awkwardness and its variety. A dance with Mr. Gorodetsky and his co-creators, Peekaboo Point and Hilary Preston, well, that dance begins in unison. Their movements are aligned. As the dance progresses, they go out of sync and then back into sync again. The idea of this choreography seems to be the physical manifestation of one's sexual exploration, which morphs and evolves over time. Shannon Ben Simone composed exceptional original music for Miseducated, which elevates the performer's movements. Quotes and story are often layered over the score and electronically repeated. Those are quotes from the interviews. When the lighting was perfect, the audio and visual components really showcased what these artists were trying to accomplish. There are many serious moments in this piece. A Greek woman recalls her abstinence class, which required her to sign a pledge card. Two especially poignant voiceovers dealt with embarrassment suffered from having a period and also a young man's trying to pray his gay away. As archaic as this sounds to many, many people, religion's antidote for the devil's temptation is just don't have sex. Not every minute of this well-conceived blast of creativity was as effectively realized. The idea of sharing quotes from interviews was certainly interesting, even if many felt commonplace and obvious. Being shared from notes while the performers slow tumbled down the stairs, well, that section was overlong. This part was neither visually as strong as the other sections, and the words were too quickly tossed aside. Early on, when Miseducated begins to probe the unfortunate traps of something so very natural to human beings, a striptease occurs. In this moment, the giddiness of youthful exploration of the body of the opposite sex is endearingly portrayed. It seemed so very natural and in direct counterpoint to the shame so often hurled at the young. Flesh Mob attempted to braid together the threads of absurdity, hilarity, awkwardness, shame, and trauma. They were looking to implicate ourselves, our community, and the audience in the process. I have to say mission accomplished. The idea for this piece is clearly provocative, and the execution was nicely constructed. Maintaining the best parts while tightening the interview storytelling might make this creative endeavor soar to orgasmic levels of entertaining performance art. I'll go uptown next to one of the big Broadway musical openings for the spring, based on the movie Tootsie. The sixth show on Broadway this year to be adapted from a movie, Tootsie arrives loaded with classic comedy potential. The 1982 Dustin Hoffman film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. This story is about a man impersonating a woman in order to book an acting gig. Along the way, he learns something about himself and about women. That message seems perfectly timed for the hashtag MeToo movement. As a Broadway musical, the results, though, are mixed. On the very positive side, Robert Horn's book is hilarious. There are so many zingers to savor throughout the entire show. 
when Michael dresses like a woman, he looks like Faye Dunaway as a gym coach. The setting is the present day, and the updates are inspired. Quote, my phone doesn't recognize my face ID unless I'm crying. Wordplay is also employed when a character says a plaque on both your houses. A solid cast keeps the fun moving along. As Michael Dorsey, Dorothy Michaels, Santino Fontana was funny and warmly winning, playing the male and female versions of Michael Dorsey. I actually found the Michael scenes more entertaining than the Dorothy ones. La Caja Foll and other female impersonation entertainments were occasional novelties 40 years ago. Today, men dressing as women seem mainstream. There are more than 10 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race on television. Dorothy may be charming, even empowering, but just putting on a shiny red dress and smiling is fairly basic stuff. That it mimics the movie and happens twice is far too predictable. Surrounding Mr. Fontana is a cadre of merrymakers. Michael's roommate is the character who sees the lunacy and relishes the absurdity. Andy Grodoleshkin's performance is a wonderful combination of deadpan line deliveries and comedic pauses. Ex-girlfriend Sandy Lester is played by Sarah Stiles. Hilarious as the neurotic actress who competes with Dorothy for a role, the energy on stage was at full wattage in her every scene. She has the by far best number in the show, What's Gonna Happen? Admittedly, a very close cousin from another David Yazbek musical called Women on the Verge of a Major Breakdown, the song killed for its swift and clever lyrics. Reg Rogers was devilishly sleazy as the lecherous director Ron Carlyle. As the producer, Julie Halston nailed every laugh written for her all-knowing, been-around-the-block-and-back-again character. In the role of an unbelievably dumb reality star with washboard abs and wannabe actor Max Van Horn, John Bielman hit a home run with his physical comedy and brilliant buffoonery. Why then is Tootsie just a fair musical? David Yazbek's score did not seem to match the show it was in. There are a lot of songs, many of which are one or two character emotional numbers with titles like Who Are You? and I Won't Let You Down. In nearly every case, the songs are tuneful but largely uninteresting. They slow the very funny story down considerably. In addition, a few performers noticeably and repeatedly struggle to hit the notes as written. Director Scott Ellis's staging is fairly old school. The few ensemble musical numbers and the choreography by Dennis Jones were not additive to the fun. Making average jokes about imitating Fosse's signature movements is not particularly fresh, especially when repeated multiple times. The film Tootsie had Michael Dorothy hired to be on a soap opera. In this musical, the acting job was understandably changed to one in a Broadway play. Juliet's Nurse is the sequel to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Mr. Horn's memorable book does wring some laughs out of this scenario. The ending of this show, however, cannot compete with the zaniness of the original film. All things considered, perhaps Tootsie should have been constructed as a play with some music. The pacing would have been much tighter. This musical can be recommended for plenty of laughs and a very good cast. The two dozen songs, however, will remind you that your girdle is too tight and your dogs are barking from those ill-fitting high heels.
Now for the last entry in this season's Encore Revivals, the musical High Button Shoes. In his 1946 book, The Sisters Liked Them Handsome, author Stephen Longstreet noted, I can remember when there had been no world wars, when people still lived in a large world, and the uncles went to places like China and California and Hoboken for their sinning. It is of those times I have written, of the time when I was young and we all lived in a calm era, 1900 to 1914. It is a world you shall never see again. From his own source material, Mr. Longstreet wrote the book for the 1947 musical High Button Shoes. For its 75th anniversary season, City Center has revived this forgotten chestnut as the third and final production of this year's Encore series. The show is notable as the first big Broadway hit for composer Julie Stein. He later wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Funny Girl. Super fun fact. Ten years later, after this show was produced, Stephen Sondheim would rewrite the lyrics from one of the songs that was dropped during High Button Shoes' pre-production. That is how the gypsy classic Everything's Coming Up Roses was born. Broadway legend George Abbott directed High Button Shoes and, as rumor has it, substantially rewrote the book. The choreography by Jerome Robbins, however, is what put this musical on the map. He won a Tony Award for his efforts at the second ceremony in 1948. How to describe the antics of the plot? Think Broadway musical comedy filtered through a vaudeville lens. Slapstick humor given a burlesque styling. Harrison Floy is a fast-talking conman who dupes the Longstreet family, who are residents of a small-town New Jersey home. Floy and his partner in crime, Punt do flee to Atlantic City with a bag of cash they have swindled. Add in a few romantic subplots, like the song I Still Get Jealous, and also the Rutgers football team, who sing on the banks of the old Raritan, voila, a musical is hatched. Some of the comedy is silly and dated, but I still chuckled. Are you an authority on birds? The answer, I've been hawking for 20 years. Cockatoos mate for life. They must be exhausted. Phil Silvers originated the role of Harrison Floy. You can imagine his physicality and hear his line delivery in Michael Urie's deftly conceived interpretation. He is funny and appropriately the big center of attention in this show. The humor verges on titillatingly naughty. The lyrics for On a Sunday by the Sea gleefully boast... You can misbehave underneath a wave and nobody can see. More controversial at the time was the song You're My Boy, which comes after the love ballad You're My Girl. One critic of the time slammed the two male crooks as guilty of atrocious taste in consenting to sing it. Other critics were less rabid, noting that it offered a funny act of burlesque, which followed the homosexual comedy pattern of that bygone art. Let's just agree that in this version, Mr. Yuri underlined the lyric gay with the largest Sharpie ever. The big reason to revisit High Button Shoes, however, is for the choreography of the Bathing Beauty Ballet. At the seashore, the bad guys, the people they swindled, the cops, some lifeguards and bathing beauties, plus one gorilla, engage in a Max Sennett-like silent movie, Keystone Cops Ballet, 
running in and out of cabanas, they pantomime, crash, flip, dance, switch doors and partners with exaggerated whimsy. Even today's audience eagerly applauded at its conclusion. Sarah Oglebe recreated Jerome Robbins' original staging for that playful showstopper and also for the lovely soft shoe number, I Still Get Jealous. I find it hard to make an argument for High Button Shoes as a great musical. There are some very good songs, including the forgotten hit, Papa Won't You Dance With Me. My favorite performances in this revival were from Mark Koch and Carla Duran, who had nice romantic chemistry as the love-bitten youngsters, Rutgers footballer Ogle and the sweetly heroic Fran. He croons her with the appropriately goofy, Next to Texas, I Love You. If you care to take a swim in musical theater history, where football and vaudeville could amusingly coexist on stage, High Button Shoes is worth the plunge. A sneeringly bitter woman behind me loudly and exasperately squawked at her husband during intermission. We should leave. This is awful. She reluctantly stayed, despite her body language, which read as amplified disgust. The wrong person for this show made a good decision, however. It's not every day that you get to celebrate history and experience what audiences wanted after a decade of the Great Depression and World War II. Now I'd like to talk about a dance piece that I saw at the Flea Theater. For their 38th season, Elisa Monte Dance has established a new partnership with the Flea Theater. Itinerant companies receive in-house administrative support and access to further their reach. Elisa Monte made her professional debut dancing with Agnes DeMille. Her career propelled her to become a principal dancer for Martha Graham, Lara Lubavitch, Palobolus, and others. Since 1979, she choreographed more than 50 works. Tiffany Ray Fisher was a principal dancer in this company beginning in 2004. Three years ago, she was named artistic director. Four pieces were presented in this season's program. Ms. Ray Fisher choreographed three of them, and the other was from the company's repertoire. The dances are all contemporary and highlight the company's signature style, defined as daring, intense, and passionate while being classical and highly athletic. Giovanna Parks started the evening in a solo piece excerpted from a 2017 work entitled The Best Self Project. Accompanied by a recorded conversation, societal issues are examined through words while dances are interrupting the theories. The cycles of menstruation in the moon, the Pope announcing that gay marriage is as big a threat to the world as the destruction of the rainforest. Unless we move to a feminine system of government, we don't stand a chance. Miss Park was expressive and engaging in a piece that seemed to embrace conflict. As we were mentally processing the commentary on our social climate, we were also distracted by the abstract dance. Dreamtime is a piece which premiered in 1986 and was my favorite dance of the evening. David Van Tingham's score and Miss Monte's original choreography celebrates Australian Aboriginal rituals. The movement consisted of patterns combining and diverging, yet always with a feeling of harmony and balance with the whole team. I purchased an Aboriginal artist painting on a trip down under in 2017. My painting is similarly filled with patterns which are a visual representation of the storytelling their people use to convey knowledge of land. 
When I considered the dance and my art piece together, the spiritual connectivity enriched the experience for me. Having its world premiere, the next piece was And Then There Were, and it was the most vigorously athletic work on display. A couple performed standing 180-degree leg splits. The choreography was impressive for showcasing a talented troupe performing much of the stance on point. I did not understand how these movements represented, quote, a reaction to the turbulent nature of the world, unquote, but the feats were well executed. The fourth and final piece was a work in progress. H.E.R. will have its premiere in 2020 as part of the Harlem Renaissance Centennial. H.E.R. pays homage to three black queer writers from the 1920s. These ladies gave voice to the underrepresented and advocated for suffrage and civil rights. The dance was an ebullient celebration using sounds and styles from that era. Even a little Charleston was thrown into the mix. The period costumes and group dance were energetically staged and a crowd pleaser. As the dance develops, it will be interesting to see how these three inspirational women are brought forth. This spring 2019 program is my first visit to the Elisa Monte Dance Company. I am a theater critic who doesn't pretend to be an expert in dance criticism. From my seat as a fan, though, I found this company and their production enjoyable and nicely varied. Recommended especially for those who might want to experience an accessible and professional introduction to contemporary dance. While speaking about dance, what about the supergroup Motown act, The Temptations? I'd like to next talk to you about my reaction to Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of The Temptations, which opened on Broadway this past month. Jukebox musicals continue to populate Broadway. After the mega-hit Mamma Mia came the Tony-winning Jersey Boys. The dull disco biography Summer, the Donna Summer musical, opened and closed last year. Still running on Broadway, this season's entertaining, albeit flawed, The Share Show continues to believe in life after love. Adding to this expanding universe is the surprisingly excellent Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. One of the most successful popular musical acts of all time, The Temptations had four number one singles. They were the first Motown act to score a Grammy Award for Cloud Nine in 1969. And that highlights how notoriously behind the curve these awards always were. The group's hits are classics, including My Girl and Get Ready. Legendary producer Barry Gordy deftly molded these young men into one of the label's biggest success stories. 1964's Meet the Temptations was a compilation of previously released singles, including The Way You Do the Things You Do. Four years later, they recorded Diana Ross and the Supremes Joined the Temptations. The two monumental Motown powerhouses combined for a television special. How big was Motown during this time? In one week during December of 1969, Motown had five of the top ten Billboard singles, Love Child, Cloud Nine, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, For Once in My Life, and from this supergroup combination, I'm Gonna Make You Love Me. Considering that history, I understand why the Supremes get more than a quick number in Ain't Too Proud. Dominique Morisot's book has to cover a lot of ground, so details are predictably rushed. 
The story will be familiar to anyone who has ever heard how stars are born and how they flame out amidst the trappings and pitfalls of success. This particular one includes nearly all of them, including ego clashing, complicated relationships within the group and with women, alcoholism, drugs, music industry politics, and an extraordinary cascade of musical excellence. Admittedly, that last sentence could be applied to many acts from the recording industry. What makes Ain't Too Proud stand out is the inventive and incredibly interesting staging by director Des McAnuff. While the story might feel familiar, and the presentation of hit after hit might become wearying, the unique way everything evolves is fantastically fluid and in its own way artistic. I marveled at the creativity, which never ceased throughout the production. Performances are terrific across the board. As Otis Williams, Derek Baskin narrates the tale, noting that there is no progress without sacrifice, he revisits this journey, wondering whether it will be worth losing his friends. Mr. Baskin effortlessly switches from narrator to group leader and performer, then back again. He is excellent. The diverse personalities and musical stylings of the original Four Temps are well played by talented performers. From Detroit, Otis was joined by Paul, played with heartbreaking realness by James Harkness, Deep Voice Melvin, who's played by Joan M. Jackson, and the Cabat of Eddie, nicely characterized by Jeremy Pope. The gorgeously smooth voice David, who's played by Ephraim Sykes, also joins the group. In a frenzy of fast-moving storytelling and dozens and dozens of songs, each person manages to create a fully fleshed-out individual. This show doesn't soften the hard edges like the musical Motown did. As a result, the story is more compelling than a silly hagiography. The book effectively considers the ups and downs encountered along this group's journey. Agonizing decisions are part of the temptation's history. As of today, there have been 24 members of this group. Four women play multiple parts throughout this show, and they are all, without exception, terrific. St. Alban, as Dennis Edwards and others, was particularly memorable. I also love Jarvis B. Manning Jr.'s performance of both Al Bryant and Norman Whitfield. Otis Williams frequently reminds us that the group as a whole was much bigger than the sum of its parts. The creative team for this production is no different. The technical design aspects, choreography by Sergio Trillo, and costumes by Paul Tazewell were all first-rate. The emotional depth of the second act elevated Ain't Too Proud from a slick jukebox musical entertainment to a richer examination of the human condition. This musical recounts yet another trials and tribulations tale of the destructive nature of show business. In this case, however, the superb quality of the overall production ensures that the story shines brightly, nearly as dazzling as the talented men brought back to life to be celebrated all over again. Another Broadway offering, I'd like to talk about the Roundabout Theater production of All My Sons. Arthur Miller's first successful play was All My Sons, which had its Broadway premiere in 1947. Over the next decade, he wrote Death of a Salesman, The Crucible, and A View from the Bridge. Familial relationships and social responsibility are integral to his works. His criticism of the American dream managed to have him question 
by Congress's House Un-American Activities Committee. Free speech has always been vaguely conceptual. You just have to agree with who's in power at the time. All My Sons takes place in August 1947, after World War II has ended. Benjamin Walker plays Chris Keller, who has returned with evidence of injury in his gait. His brother Larry has been missing in action for more than three years. Annette Benning is Mother Kate. She believes in her soul that her son will come home. Occasional news stories about such miracles fuel that belief. Kate is a classic believer. She's convinced there's God, so certain things have to happen. One particular line illuminates her character and simultaneously criticizes people like her at the same time. Don't be so intelligent. Some superstitions are very nice. Sadly misguided and heartbroken, Kate can also be quite nasty when it suits her. Tracy lets his father, Joe, and he's a recognizable Miller patriarch, a flawed individual who justifies his actions in support of his family. Or is it primarily for himself? During the war, a bad decision at his factory had his partner and next-door neighbor sent to prison. Joe was exonerated. One family collapsed. The other thrived financially. Ann Deaver was the daughter of the guilty man and has since shunned her imprisoned father. She had a relationship with Larry before the war. Brother Chris has invited her to visit the family. Wounds will be opened. A storm is brewing at the beginning of this play. A tree planted in the honor of Larry snaps. Over three acts, people and dreams will be broken. Jack O'Brien has staged a truly impressive revival of this play. The play is wildly melodramatic, which, in a less assured production, could make this seem preachy and perhaps even naively nostalgic. Not here. The actors are all excellent. Their relationships, whether familial or neighborly, are effortlessly believable. The tension builds and builds and builds, slowly and continually. I did not see a moment that was not perfectly rendered. All My Sons is a time capsule of yesterday and also a hazy reflection into a mirror of our society today. In the most difficult role, Mr. Walken's Chris has all the necessary gullibility and goodness embedded in his soul. His slight limp reflects his desire to cover up his emotions and man up. The performance is thrilling for its ability to equal the intense but realistically dramatic levels achieved by Ms. Benning and Mr. Letts. The individualized tragedy of this family swept up inside the American dream has been beautifully and intelligently realized. All My Sons certainly takes a hard look at the greed of capitalism and war profiteering. In that regard, this 70-year-old play remains fascinating and very topical. The characters are from a different era, of course. What is the same, however, is the self-preservation mechanisms employed by humans to survive and excel, however that is defined. That's the dream we wish for all our sons and daughters. It's the collateral damage that's so hard to face. From a big Broadway theater, I'd like next to take you to a tiny, tiny theater, upstairs above a church. The play is called The Pink Unicorn. Playwright Elise Fourier Eady is often asked how much of the pink unicorn is true. She answers all of it and none of it. 
All of the events depicted happened to someone, including herself. A high school did refuse to allow the formation of a gay and straight alliance club. Transgender children and their families are shunned, harassed, and threatened for allowing freedom of expression. Written as a one-woman confessional, Trisha Lee takes us through her unexpected journey as a mother. Sparkton, Texas, is a small town where everyone hangs the American flag on the 4th of July and goes to church on Sunday. Her daughter decides that she wants to go to her new high school as a person without gender. Jolene becomes Joe and adopts the pronoun they. While this subject matter continues to rise in popularity, rarely does it seem as honest and generous of spirit as it is here. As written, the play creates a believable story arc for this complicated mother-child relationship. Alice Ripley's heartfelt and earnest performance adds layers and layers of emotional depth. By the end, there is a freedom expressed that is not simply obvious. Trisha Lee is still imperfect, but that's exactly what she should be. Along the way, Miss Ripley gets to wring quite a few laughs out of her observations. Joe owns a pet tarantula that she wears on her shoulder like a furry epaulette. On the male-female scale, there is Marilyn Monroe on one end and Charles Bronson on the other. Quote, where I'm from, talking to the ACLU is the same thing as talking to Satan. Joe has been raised without her father who died in an accident. She has an imaginary pink unicorn named Star Dancer. She confuses mom. She's not hiding that she's gay, she's trans. If she were drunk or pregnant, her mother would know what to do. To mom's credit, she holds her pocketbook, which is decorated with butterfly appliques, and tries to understand and even learn something. LGBTQ are all different, evidently. Listening to a woman walking through the uncharted foreign territory of gender neutrality and pansexuals is intending to be comforting, eye-opening, and, I presume, calmly reassuring and instructive to similarly perplexed parents. In this play, a priest delivers a sermon in Trisha Lee's church. The author wrote it pretty much word for word as spoken by the pastor in her former church. He invoked the Holocaust and likened supporters of the LGBT community to Nazis. As a Christian woman, both author and her protagonist wrestle with lines from the Bible and the people who conveniently pick and choose which ones they believe. Yes, it remains stunning how the religious community has completely abandoned do not judge and you shall not be judged. Out of the Box Theatrics is a small company founded in 2015 dedicated to producing new and classic works from a fresh perspective in site-specific locations. The Pink Unicorn is being staged in the Episcopal Actors Guild upstairs above the Church of the Transfiguration. The Guild's history is one rich in support of the acting community and those in need. The play would definitely benefit from a few less metaphors, especially those concerning animals. This intimate venue is an ideal way to spend some time with Trisha Lee. The story is timely, important, nicely told, and prompts thought. Spending more than an hour and a half enjoying Alice Ripley deliver this monologue in a room with two dozen people is the icing on a joyously hopeful rainbow cake. I'll apologize now for this transition, but we're going to go from joyously hopeful to violent. 
Presented by the Red Bull Theater, a revival of Macbeth. In May 2014, three Wisconsin girls walked into the woods. Twelve years old, they went out for a walk after a sleepover. When they reached the woods, the birthday girl stabbed her best friend 19 times. They intended the murder to be a blood sacrifice to a fictional internet character known as Slender Man. This macabre tale is one of the inspirations for director Erica Schmidt's unforgettable version of Macbeth. In another notorious murder, two teenage girls who dreamed up an elaborate fantasy world were about to become separated. They beat one of their mothers to death during a walk in the woods. Preteen girls emerged from the woods in Salem back in 1692, having seen witches and devils. One of the Slenderman girls was eventually diagnosed with a psychological disorder called shared delusional belief, an obsession with the occult coupled with the strong bonds of fantasy and isolation shared by teenage girls has resulted in unspeakable horrors. That shared charge between these awful teenage girls and the witches in Macbeth stoked the imagination of Miss Schmidt. Shakespeare's witches have occult visions in the wilderness. What if seven teenage girls meet up after school and find themselves carried away by Shakespeare's words? From the program notes, the director even heard echoes between the bard's fictional words and frighteningly real language. Lady Macbeth has a line, one, two, why then tis time to do it. A West Virginia girl posted on Twitter that we really did go on three after she and another girl stabbed their friend in 2012. Dressed in school uniforms, this Macbeth is both extraordinarily violent and bizarrely hilarious. The girls are partying in the woods with wine in their red solo cups. The language is updated. Bow down, bitches. School references are thrown in. Thou art the best of the cutthroats. And where did you get that? The science lab? Malcolm says, Your matrons and your maids could not fill up the cistern of my lust and my desire. Our young lady who says those lines adds in her droll editorial, it is too much. The audience reactions are varied to this vividly realized nightmare. Some seem repulsed by the gleeful gore. Some found the proceedings shockingly hilarious. I landed in both camps. Miss Schmidt accomplished her mission, her Macbeth is all the more gruesome and disturbing when filtered through the exaggerated lens of real events. Stabbings as fun, or what you will. The seven young actresses are incredibly effective and fully committed to this mad vision. This is clearly a Macbeth for those who know the play. Clocking in at just over 90 minutes, and perhaps appropriate for a generation raised on spark notes, the words fly out with extreme speed. Much of the time they feel rushed on the way to the next grotesquerie. In between some of those moments, I was slightly bored. This version exists for its outrageous style, not its nuanced storytelling. Featuring the famous line, Out Damn Spot, Macbeth is considered a tragedy. When put through the sinister lens of mean girls gone bloody, this production amps up the tragic to cataclysmic levels. Savagery is everywhere. Even delusional schoolgirls are susceptible to our species' most detestable impulses. 
Our entertainments keep getting more and more violent. All the world's a stage, I guess. Next, I'd like to talk about a very unique play called Dr. Elise. On vacation and visiting Munich, what might be an interesting piece of theater? The Münchner Kammerspiele Company was founded in 1906 and became the city's municipal troupe in 1933. In 1926, they moved into their Schauspielhaus, a surviving, nicely renovated Art Nouveau theater built in 1901. Written by Olga Bach, Dr. Elisi is based on Professor Bernhardi by the Austrian playwright Arthur Schnitzler. First performed in Berlin, this 1912 play was billed as a comedy even though it explored anti-Semitism. Hitler referred to Schnitzler's works as Jewish filth, and they were banned by the Nazis. Miss Bach has updated the conflicts explored in Professor Bernhardi to our current times. Instead of Jews, this play addresses Muslims. Add in English supertitles to a comedic play about racism, which is historically significant and staged in a cool German theater? What's not to love? Dr. Elisi is the police president. The year is 2023, two months before the Bavarian state elections. The set is eerily dystopian, a house lit in bright neon colors, a telephone pole with wires on a colorless street. It is storming and rain is coming down hard. Bizarre figures enter the stage. Is this imagery surreal, futuristic, or simply dark and quirky? In the home of Dr. Elisi, there is a statue of a woman. She is standing with outstretched arms and has a baby sucking her teat. The piece is deemed obscene as its shape is similar to a crucifix. The implication is that this Islamic woman is mocking Christianity. She is under attack by members of the Occident Party for some controversial decisions she has approved. If you're like me and needed a reminder of who the Occident Party was, it's a 1960s French far-right militant political group. Adding to the intrigue is a double-crossing member of her staff who was pushed to throw her under the bus. You have a heart, but you're no do-gooder. Your boss is a risky situation. Making matters even more tantalizing, Dr. Elise is a lesbian and her niece is an immigrant. Rain continues to pour down throughout this story. The weather is simply abnormal these days, adding climate change to the mix of social and political commentary. Five individuals have been arrested and detained on suspicion of planning a terrorist attack. One of the suspects is not physically well. The Mueller report about his medical condition is being withheld. The man in question is more than 70 years old. He is a very successful businessman and has children. The play clearly plunges headfirst into today's headlines. Humor is often employed and is sharply effective. Regarding public opinion, 75% of people of the 500 we asked believe dot, 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 the Turkish police are called enemies of the people. As the plot progresses, considerations for using the legal system are discussed. We already know the outcome. Why tax the legal system? There's even mention of withdrawing a firearms license. The play begs the question, 
is this a crystal ball into democracy in 2023? Dr. Elisi subtly excoriates the world we live in today. Vividly directed by Ursan Montag, the murky imagery increasingly ratchets up the tension. Rain will pour with increasing vigor. The stage design by Nina Peller was exquisitely moody and dark, both claustrophobic and cartoonish. The creative elements nicely framed a play which considers our imperfect societies, our nauseating politics, and our history-repeating behaviors. The whole production, including the memorable performances, makes Dr. Alicia a worthwhile theatrical experience. For an American, watching German artists creatively commenting on current affairs adds to this uniquely enjoyable drama. The creepiness of the story's plausibility, visible underneath the artistically rendered imagery, is the wow factor. I've provided a link to a brief clip of this show, which provides a glimpse into the exquisite mood and unforgettable visuals of this highly recommended play, that link is on my website at www.theaterreviewsformyseat. I'll just search for the review for Dr. Alici, D-O-K-T-O-R-A-L-I-C-I. And yet another revival of a play this month, The Shadow of a Gunman. The Irish Rep is devoting a season to three of Sean O'Casey's plays as part of its 30th anniversary season. The Shadow of a Gunman was written in 1923 and is the first play of his Dublin trilogy. The other two plays are Juno and the Paycock from 1924 and The Plow and the Stars from 1926. All three are being performed in repertory this spring. Set during the Irish War of Independence, the scenes in The Shadow of a Gunman take place in a tenement room in a poor Dublin slum. Donal Doverin is a poet who has come to live with Seema Shields. Other residents mistake Donal for an IRA gunman who is on the run. He doesn't object to the notoriety it brings, especially when Minnie Powell takes an interest in him. The play begins with a heavy dose of comedy before turning tragic. A business partner leaves a bag in Seamus's room, which he wrongly believes contains household items for resale. An ambush goes bad, and the man who dropped off the bag is killed. The city is put on curfew. The black and tans are patrolling and raid the tenement. The play turns from a comedy into a tragedy. In this vivid retelling, the tension is riveting. As is often the case at the Irish Rep, the cast is exemplary in creating fully fleshed out characters filled with the life and the enjoyable foibles of human beings. Sarah O'Reilly firmly directed this piece to be faithful to the play as written. The language is thick Irish brogue. There is a welcoming rhythm to the actors, which somehow allows the abrupt change in tone to be convincing and harrowing. For those interested in exploring Mr. O'Casey's work, The Shadow of a Gunman is a fine place to start. With a detailed and realistic set design by Charlie Corcoran, this is a fairly perfect production of this particular play. The other two plays in the Dublin trilogy deal with the Easter Rising 1916 and the Irish Civil War of 1922 and 23. Along with the Irish War of Independence, which is depicted in the shadow of a gunman, the three major events mark the beginning of the nation of Ireland as we know it today. 
What's also noteworthy is that there is another superb play about the Irish on Broadway right now. Set during the Troubles in the 1980s, The Ferryman by Jez Butterworth is even grander in scope with a cast of two dozen full-blooded characters. These stories are rich, filled with difficult politics and themes for an exhaustibly resilient people. The Ferryman is the frontrunner for this year's Best Play Tony. Now is exactly the right time to take in one of these masterpieces filled with colorful Irish men and women, all wrestling with the conflicts of the period in which they live. My last entry this month is a play called Messiah. When you enter the downstairs space at La Mama, multicolored fluorescent lights illuminate a multi-level stage. Asked to enter the theater in twos, your first stop is a few steps up to a level. If you so choose, you can go inside the curtain to speak with the great ancestors. The play Messiah has big ambitions, a title which promises significance, and a downtown sensibility right from the start. The jam-packed story arc begins in March 1968. FBI Director Hoover was quoted as saying that the Black Panthers were one of the greatest threats to the nation's internal security. This play has a viewpoint. Hoover is trying to neutralize black militant groups to prevent the rise of the Messiah. In a nightclub, a disc jockey begins scratching. The scratch functions not only to set a time and a place, but also to represent distance. Between music and time, between Africa and America, even between beats and silence. Scratch, and it's 1996. Mom offers her child encouragement. Don't ever stop rapping. Now a DJ named Messiah, the plot swirls around stylistically and melodramatically. Messiah deals with queer and trans people struggling within the legacies of sexism and homophobia of black nationalism. The Starland Strip Club is also a setting where a gorgeous trans performer finds an unlikely admirer, the absentee father of Messiah. The melodrama and plot contrivances multiply. Lines such as, I can't go through with this, and I can't watch someone else die, are commonplace. Some intensely poetic word imagery, however, is very effective. Here's an example. I can still smell blood on the concrete. Crack cocaine has begun to devastate the community, and Starland is not immune as its ladies become ghosts. The spirits of the ancestors are represented on stage by two women. The play frequently stops to underscore how this community came to be so damaged. The CIA was behind the Contras who were sending crack to the hoods. This particular controversy was real news and is used as another example of how the system represses and continues to enslave. Writer and director Nia O. Witherspoon definitely has a ton of topics to address about the African-American and LGBTQ experience. She confronts not only oppression from outside, but also the internal problems within the community itself. The range of subjects is exhaustively comprehensive. Topics covered in this play include single moms, transvestites, drugs, capitalism, gender issues, police brutality, rap music expressionism, alcoholism, prostitution, and more. Messiah does need an edit. 
The first act is a long hour and 45 minutes. This soap opera eventually pulls together the plot strings connecting these characters in the second act. There are many inspired sections that feel angry and instructive. The Black Panthers tell their story about bravery, but the young people are calling bullshit on that. To his absentee father, he says, You think you're a revolutionary? Well, you ain't. You're fucking pathetic. A strong cast brings this vision to pulsating life. The dual roles of Messiah and Malika add depth to the character's journey, each aware of the importance of the other. Painful lessons are learned, none perhaps more damning than this nugget. We all have the white man's religion inside us. Messiah offers up plenty to think about and is a nice start to La Mama's month-long programming reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. I expect everyone's personal frame of reference will shade their engagement with this material. In her play, Ms. Witherspoon addresses the past to spark a future which shifts reality, quote, towards creativity, justice, and freedom. That's a tall order. Traveling across a few less lanes might tighten and shorten this unique and inspirational theatrical event. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, I'm going to be in San Francisco and Chicago reviewing two uh, plays and a new musical in New York City at the Atlantic Theater Company by Duncan Sheik, Susan Birkenhead, who wrote Jelly's Last Dam, and Lynn Nottage, who won a Pulitzer Prize for Sweat. They've combined to put a musical on it's going to be directed by Sam Gold at the Atlantic Theater Company, based on Sue Monk Kid's 2002 best-selling novel, The Secret Life of Bees. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Have a great day, and thanks again for listening.